Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you want to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to be finishing up 1 Samuel 2 this morning, verses 27 through 36. And as you're turning there, if there are any children who will be participating in our children's class, we invite you to make your way there to the uh, room at the back where our volunteers will be there to greet you and to instruct you in the Lord's Word there in that context this morning. Before we dive into 1 Samuel 2, I want to take a moment to mention just a few things. First of all, both Martin and Ross, who were here with us last week from Scotland, wanted me to communicate to you all their gratitude to you for how you all loved on them and were encouraging to them. It was refreshing to their souls to be here, and they wanted you to know that. And I want to apologize to you that I cannot preach in an English accent, so you have to put up with this this morning instead. Secondly, of course, just as we did with the war in Ukraine, I want to take just a moment to pray for the conflict and war that's happening in Israel right now. So just let me read for us related to that from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 21 through 24, as a reminder of God's sovereignty over the nations. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. We are reminded that in the midst of any conflict, any war, our God reigns. He reigns over all nations, and so we can rest in that truth this morning. But certainly we want to pray for peace. We are commanded to pray for peace, to pray for resolution, to pray for justice, and to pray for the preservation of life. So let me lead us in praying for that this morning and then praying for our time together and the truth of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, even now this morning, we acknowledge that the only reason we are gathered together as your people is because of the mercy and grace that you have shown us. It's because of the complete work of Christ that stands in our place. And so, Father, I pray that you would even now fix our eyes on things above, that we would rest uh, in the finished work of Christ this morning. Father, I also pray that we would rest in your sovereignty over all things. Even as wars erupt around this world, as it's happening in Ukraine even now, as it's happening in Israel as of this weekend, Father, we rest in your sovereignty, that you rule over the nations, that you are in perfect control. Father, we know that you are a God of justice, and so we pray that you would bring justice where it is necessary. And at the very same time, we pray that it would come to a quick and peaceful resolution so that as many lives as possible can be preserved. But Father, we, we trust you. We trust you in the midst of this. And we confess that in moments like this, our hearts can grow in anxiety and worry. But instead, Father, I pray that our hearts would grow 
in our faith and trust in your sovereign hand, and that you are working all things for our good and for the glory of your name. And that includes being here this morning. You've brought us here for your good purposes. You've brought us here for our good. And so, Father, we pray that you would use your word at work in our lives powerfully this morning. We pray that the spirit that you have sent to dwell in us through the merciful work of Christ on the cross, that you would use your spirit to be at work in us, to awaken us to the truth of your word this morning so that we might understand more of who you are, but also understand more of who we are and our desperate need for mercy and grace. And so, Father, I pray that you would be at work in us this morning, changing us, molding us to the likeness of Jesus through the truth of your word for our good and for your glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me now read our passage for us. I know we did it in a little bit of a different order this morning, but let me read for us from 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 27 through the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 27 through the end of the chapter. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father shall go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever." And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Well, when we started for Samuel a few weeks ago, we were reminded that it comes right on the hills of the book of Judges. We talked about this, I think, when every section of Samuel so far. And, and in that time, the end of the book of Judges reminds us that there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're reminded of this continual ongoing cycle that had occurred for generation after generation in the life of Israel at that point where God's people would rebel. God would bring his judgment on them by bringing a nation against them. They would cry out to him for deliverance. He would raise up a leader, a judge, to free them from their oppression. They would experience that freedom and grace from God. And then, of course, they would rebel 
once more. God would bring judgment again. They would cry out to him. He raised up a leader to rescue them. And then they rebelled again over and over and over and over again. And as we are reminded of a pattern like that, even as you read through the book of Judges, it's tempting to read that and to distance yourself from those people, right? We read that and we think about those people. We think about how stupid and stubborn and hard-hearted those people are. And we think we would never do that. But the scriptures were not written to simply tell us about the sinful hearts of other people. The scriptures were written to reveal the sinful nature of our hearts to us as well. This is what the author of Hebrews means in chapter 4, verse 12, when he says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. In other words, even the narratives of Scripture are intended to be a, a mirror that God holds in front of you that you are to see yourself in. The Scriptures are a sword that reveal the, the sinfulness of your own heart. So this isn't just about Eli's sin. It's not just about Hophni and Phineas's sin. It's about our sin. It's about the sin we're tempted to step into as well. But of course, the beauty of Scripture is that it also displays the patient mercy of our God in the theater of this fallen world. That it's not just about our sin, it's also about our Redeemer. So even though we see in the Scriptures failure after failure, rebellious hearts and stubborn sinners, we also see a faithful God, our long-suffering Father, and our forever reigning King. And we need to see both of those. We need to see them both. Because it's when those two intersect when we understand the depths of our sin and the faithful mercy of our Father, that we then grow in understanding the overwhelming reality of the mercy and grace that we have been shown in the good news of the gospel. You see, when the sword of God's word pierces through to the sinful motivations of our heart, it makes us ready to receive the grace and mercy of God that he is ready to pour out on us through the finished work of Christ. And that's precisely what's happening in this passage this morning here in 1 Samuel 2, 27 through 36. We're going to see the wicked nature of man's heart. You are going to see the wicked, rebellious hearts of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. You are going to see it laid bare before God. And we're going to see God bring his judgment against them. He's going to declare his judgment against them. But in the end, we also see the never-ending mercy and generosity of God on display toward his people by providing a faithful priest. You see, this entire passage hinges on God's generosity to his people. Every facet of this passage is ultimately about how God and his generosity relate to his people. So let's look at these three truths about God's generosity. First, we'll see God's generosity rejected, which is sin. Then we'll see God's generosity removed, which is God's judgment. And then we're going to see God's generosity repeated, which is mercy. His generosity rejected, his generosity removed, his generosity repeated. Sin, judgment, and mercy. So let's look there at the first truth, God's generosity rejected. So look with me at verses 27 to 29. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord. Now let's just stop there. 
we have no idea who this man is. So you're not going to win a Bible trivia contest by guessing who this man is. Nobody knows who this man is. We don't have a clue who he is, where he came from, who his parents are, what his name is. We know nothing about him. But what we do know about him is that when he speaks, it is thus says the Lord. It is not who he is that is important. It is what he says that is important. And notice with me how he begins this proclamation, where he starts with Eli. He doesn't start by telling Eli what he has done wrong. No, the key thing is, is that he wanted Eli and he wants us to know why Eli's actions were in fact so wicked. Why were these actions so wicked? Because the darkness of Eli's sin is only going to be able to be seen clearly when held up against the light of God's generosity and kindness. So this man of God begins by telling Eli all that God had done for the house of his fathers, all that God had done for Eli. So you see that there in verse 27, he says, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. He just lists truth after truth after truth of God's gracious generosity toward Eli's house, toward his tribe. He says there in the middle of verse 27, it was, he says, look, it was when the house of your father, this is probably a reference to Aaron, when the house of your father, when they were in Egypt, when they were enslaved, I revealed myself to them. When there was nothing good in them, when there was no reason I should have shown my mercy to them, when they were there in Egypt, it was there that I revealed myself to them. It was there that I rescued them from their slavery and bondage. And not only that, but verse 28 says, I chose him out of all the tribes of Israel. He set apart the tribe of Levi to serve him at the altar. He gave to the tribe of, of Levi the, the privilege of going up to the altar, to burning the incense before them, this, this incense that created this this cloud of smoke to represent the presence of the holiness of God. He gave to the house of Levi the honor of wearing the ephod before him. This glorious ephod that represented the 12 tribes of Israel was to be adorned by the house of Levi, by the high priest. It was a privilege to be able to serve in such ways, to have such close communion with the God of Israel, that no other tribe was allowed to have. What a privilege they were given. It's what this man of God wants to remind them of. But not only this, it also says at the end of verse 28 that he gave to the house of Eli's father, to the tribe of Levi, all his offerings by fire from the people of Israel. That he generously provided for them, allowed them to partake of the sacrifices, to provide for the people of the tribe of Levi. This is exactly what Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Listen to this. Listen to how God provided for the tribe of Levi, for the Levitical priest. The Levitical priest, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance. As he promised them, 
And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep. You shall give him to the priest. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. The Lord could not have been more gracious to the house of Eli. They had the honor of serving at the altar. They had the honor of being there in the presence of the Lord. They had the honor of being provided. Their every need was to be provided for by God's people generously and abundantly generation from generation. This is what God provided for them. This is what the man of God wants Eli to remember. And therefore, it's in light of this overwhelming kindness and generosity from God that the question comes in verse 29. Why then, Eli, if God has done all this for you, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Remember last week, earlier in chapter 2, we saw how Hophni and Phinehas were abusing their position as priests. They were essentially stealing the sacrifices from God's people by jabbing a fork into the pot and removing the meat from the boiling water or by forcibly taking it from people as they brought their sacrifice forward. They said they did it to every offering that God's people brought. And as they were doing so, they were scorning the sacrifices. But what is interesting is now, This man of God is not speaking to Hophni and Phinehas. He's speaking to their father, Eli. And he says, Eli, you have honored your sons above me. You have refused to remove them from their position. You have refused to take action. But it's not only that. No, Eli is also implicated in this because what does it say in verse 29? He has scorned the sacrifices and the offerings by allowing this to continue. But but not only that, he has honored his sons above God. How? How does verse 29 say that he has done this? By fattening yourselves. That includes Eli. So we could say by fattening himself on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. You see, this is where we get the inside scoop. Eli wasn't guilty just because he didn't rebuke his sons. He's guilty because he was eating the very sacrifices his sons were stealing from the people. And now it all makes a lot more sense, right? If you are taking advantage of the evil actions of your sons and enjoying the fruits of their wickedness, of course you're not going to stop it. He was just as guilty as they were. He was dining at the table of the sacrifices of God's people with his sons, participating in it, fattening himself on such things. He was becoming heavy because he was eating more of the sacrifice than he was supposed to. And there's a really important word picture happening here. God is not interested in pointing out any individual person's size, height, whatever. It's, It's relatively unimportant to God unless he is saying something to us about them. And there is powerful imagery happening here because the word for honor is also where we get the word glory from. And and the the root of that word in the original means weightiness. When you honor someone, you're you're placing a weight upon them, the weight of glory, the, the weight of honor. And you see what the word picture that's happening here is that instead of placing the weight upon God, the honor upon him, 
Eli is placing the honor on himself and on his sons. And he is fattening himself on his own pride and arrogance and selfishness and honoring himself. And it is that very weight that will later lead to his death. And we'll find that out in later chapters of Samuel. In other words, the point is not that Eli's eating too much. That's not the point. The point is that he's making it about him and his sons instead of the glory and honor that is due to God alone. Now, I want to be sure that you see the heart that is revealed through the words of this man of God, right? The reason, the reason Eli and his sons were pursuing this sinful acquisition of more food is because they refused to be satisfied with the generous provision God had already provided. This is key to understand. The reason they wanted more is because they did not find contentedness or satisfaction in what God had already given them. And so Eli honors his sons above God because he chooses to eat from the wicked hands of his sons instead of from the hand of the gracious provision of God. This is ultimately the root of sin. This really gets down to it, brothers and sisters. We decide that what God has provided isn't good enough and will not satisfy us, and we go looking for something else. This is exactly how Jeremiah condemns God's people in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Just listen to this. Meditate on this for a moment. Jeremiah says, For my people have committed two evils. Not one evil, two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's evil number one. Evil number two, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's two evils. Not only do they turn their back on God, the fountain of living water from whom they can drink and never be thirsty again, not only do they turn away from that, they reject that and they go try to find water somewhere else. Broken cisterns that will never satisfy, that will never hold water, that will never bring them joy. Those are, in God's words, two great evils. To turn away from the source of living water and to try to find it on your own. And this is exactly what Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were doing. And the moment we do that in our own lives, when we begin to look for satisfaction from some other source, is the very moment we introduce idols into our lives, and it's the very moment that we choose to honor something else instead of God. Listen, Satan's favorite lie to tell you and me is that our father is stingy and a thief of joy. It's his favorite lie to tell you. Because if he can convince you of that, that your gracious heavenly father is stingy and wants to keep you from joy and happiness, then guess what you're going to do? You're going to start looking for it somewhere else. This is original sin. This is exactly what Satan did in the garden. Satan convinced Eve and Adam, who was with her in the garden, that God was holding something back from them. Right? If you ever just slow down to get this picture of the Garden of Eden in your mind, here they are standing in the most lush, extravagant garden that you can imagine, with fruit hanging from every tree as far as the eye could see, the, the, the limbs were probably bending from the weight of the massive amount of fruit that was on them, just everywhere. And not only that, there was this precious, amazing gift from God, the tree of life. And he said, you can eat of any tree in the garden. You can eat of the tree of life. You can eat of it and live forever and be here with me and walk with me in the garden in the cool of the day. Here we are. 
everything you can imagine that you need is right here in front of you. And you can be with me. And Satan comes and he whispers in Eve's ear while Adam is standing there. God's keeping something from you. You see that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And if you eat that, you'll finally be happy. You'll finally have the thing God doesn't want you to have. And it says, Eve listened to the voice of the serpent. She turned away from the fountain of living waters and decided to hew out her own cistern that would never hold any water. She and Adam with her committed two great evils. They ate of the fruit. And of course, God's judgment came. Listen to me this morning. You will never find joy when you pursue it outside the will of God. It is Satan's lie that makes you think otherwise. God is ready to pour out provision and grace upon you. He had poured it out on the house of Levi. He poured it out on the house of Eli. He gave them everything that they could need, and it still wasn't enough because they refused to be satisfied with what God had provided for them. And instead, he chose to honor his sons above God. Listen, the best way to fight sin, if you want to put sin to death in your life, then what we must do is pursue satisfaction in the good gifts and the good and wise commands that God has given us and trust that they are for our good and for our joy. And the moment you do that, you will be ready to put sin to death in your life. You will not listen to the voice of the serpent whispering in your ear, the voice of the serpent that convinced Eli and Hophni and Phinehas that what God provided for them wasn't enough. You see, Eli and his sons convinced themselves that they deserve more than what God had given them. They forgot that they had been nothing more than slaves in Egypt who had been miraculously and powerfully rescued from bondage and that they had been set apart and honored among all of God's people to serve at his altar and being given everything they needed every single day of their lives, but yet it still wasn't enough, so they maliciously pursued it on their own. And therefore, God brought judgment against them. And that's the second truth I want us to see about God's generosity. God's generosity removed is an act of his judgment. God's generosity removed. Look with me at verses 30 through 34. Therefore, so this is the man of God still speaking. He says, in light of what you have done, because you have rejected God, because you have honored your sons above God, because you have rejected what he has provided for you, therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares. Now, before we get into the details, what I want you to see, what I want you to notice is that everything that this uh, man of God says uh, to Eli is an act of judgment from God is removing from him the very privileges that God had given him. It is taking away the very generosity that God had provided for the house of Eli. So you see there first in verse 30, he, God had promised that his house would go in and out before him forever. But now, now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Those who want to put the weight on themselves and honor themselves will be lightly esteemed by me. Do you see the word play again? I will treat you lightly if you put the weight on you. You will be lightly esteemed. You are no longer allowed the privilege of serving at my altar. Verse 31, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man 
in your house. You will no longer have this position of privilege. You will no longer have this position serving at the altar, offering the sacrifices on behalf of God's people. But then in verse 32 is a key phrase. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. You see, here's what's fascinating. Because they rejected the gracious provision of God, they're going to have everything taken away from them. And they're going to look on how God is going to graciously provide prosperity for his people, and they're not going to be part of it. God is removing his generosity from them. In fact, if we skip ahead a little bit down to verse 36, you see this same theme playing out. Everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him, meaning this faithful priest who will come. Everyone who's left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. You see, they who were filling themselves through wicked actions will now just be begging to have what God had originally promised them. Just let me be a priest for a little while just so I can eat a piece of bread, which by the way is an exact fulfillment of Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. God's act of judgment is a removing of his generosity from the house of Eli. God says he will, you know, Eli will not see most of this come to take place because he's, but, but God says the way I'm going to prove to you that I'm going to do this is because your sons Hophni and Phinehas will die by the sword of men on the same day. But the generations who will come from you, one day I will bring your house to an end. But they, as they continue on, they will look with envy on the prosperity of Israel. They will not be allowed to serve in my house as priest any longer. There will not be an old man in your house. The reign of the priesthood of the house of Eli is coming to an end. And we see this exact thing happen in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27. Solomon comes to power and he expels the last lingering descendant of Eli. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from, pre, from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word that the Lord had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. There and then the house of Eli came to an end. You see, God's judgment on the house of Eli was a precise demonstration of Eli and his sons lack of gratitude and contentment, and therefore God took away the very things that they were to find their satisfaction in. He removed them from them. And again, we can simply return to the Garden of Eden. This is exactly what God did to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They refused his gracious provision. They refused the luscious garden. They refused all the trees that they could have eaten from for forever. They refused to have access to the tree of life because they chose to eat from that which God told them not to, because they believed the lies of Satan. And therefore, because they rejected the abundance of his gifts and pursued what they wanted and not what God had commanded, what did God do to them? He removed them from the garden. He took away the gracious provision of the garden. He set a guard at the entrance, an angel, to prevent them from ever coming back in. 
They can no longer have access to the fruit from the tree of life to eat it and live forever. Now they must die. Now they must work the ground by the sweat of their brow to feed themselves. God's judgment was inactive, removing his gracious provision and generosity from them. Ultimately, this is what hell will be. This is what eternal condemnation will be. Hell is the fulfillment of this judgment from God that he will remove from anyone who is not trusting in Christ every good thing they've had. They've wanted a world without God's presence, without his loving, generous, kind, giving, gracious presence. That is what God will give them for all eternity. But until that day, until that final day, as in the garden, God's judgment is still followed by mercy. The cycle of judges, the cycle of the Old Testament as a whole demonstrates the long suffering of our God that even after rebellion, after rebellion, after rebellion, he still shows up and shows mercy. So this is the final truth I want us to see about God's generosity is God's generosity repeated. His mercy, it keeps coming. It is relentless over and over and over again. When you and I would have given up on somebody a thousand times over, he never stops coming with his mercy. And this is what we see in verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Generation after generation after generation of corruption among God's people that comes to an ultimate head in the corruption of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, where they were even scorning and despising the very sacrifices of God's people, where they were stealing from it and forcibly taking it from people. This is a low point in Israel for the attitudes and the actions of the priest. And like I said, I don't know about you, but I would, I think I would just give up on my people at some point. But God refuses to quit. He refuses to give up because of the wickedness of these corrupt priests. He just keeps providing over and over and over again. So while God's people would have every reason to despair in the midst of such wickedness and corruption among the priestly leadership, God says that he's not going to give up on providing the priests that they need. He will not quit. Now, as with so many different prophecies in the Old Testament, we see uh, in some ways a partial fulfillment of this that points to a future fuller fulfillment of it because the day will come in Second Samuel to an end and Anthar will be removed that the house of uh, the priest of the house of Eli will come to an end and in place of Abathar's a man named Zadok will be in his place. But of course, even he is not the faithful high priest who will serve for forever. I mean, do you see that in verse uh, 35? I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. This priest that God will bring will be faithful forever and ever. He will never fail his people. He will serve forever. And of course, we know that man to be Jesus, our faithful, faultless, forever high priest. So let's just meditate for a moment over what God says about our faithful high priest in a couple of places in the book of Hebrews. And as I read these, just think of the contrast to Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So how do we respond to this faithful, forever, never failing high priest? We find the confidence to draw near to the throne of grace because he will never fail us. He will never let us down. He will never rob from us. He will never lead us astray. He will never lead us to find satisfaction and joy in anything that will not satisfy us for all eternity. We have Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So I'm just going to pause right there. He lives to make intercession for us. He doesn't live for himself ultimately. He lives to do it for us. He's serving us. Now certainly it's for the glory of his name, but he lives to make intercession for you and for me. Hebrews 7 verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now listen to this final verse, verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This priest will never fail us. This priest will never corrupt his office. This priest will be faithful to the end of the days. This priest is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for you and for me. This priest laid down his own life. He didn't steal the sacrifices from someone else. He didn't rob someone else. No, what did he do? He gave up his own life on the cross, and bore the wrath of God that you and I deserved in our place. And as Martin so faithfully reminded us last week, he victoriously and gloriously rose from the grave so that he could intercede and serve as our high priest forever and ever. What a generous and merciful God. Now here's the final question we need to end on. Where are you going to find your satisfaction? Are you going to listen to the voice of this world and the whispers of Satan that says to you, God's holding something back from you? Or will you look to the cross and see that he has given you that which nothing greater could ever be given and reject the lies of Satan and say, he's given me Jesus. There is nothing he's holding back from me. If you want to put sin to death in your life, just look to the cross. He has paid it all. He laid down his life in your place. He gave you his only son. By God's grace, let's find our satisfaction in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you that we are daily, daily tempted to turn our affections and our hope toward other lesser things. We are daily tempted to reject you, the fountain of living water, and 
cut out cisterns that could never hold any water. And so, Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit, we would silence the voice of Satan. We would silence the voice of this world, that we would silence the voice of our own sinful desires. Father, I pray that we would pursue satisfaction in Christ alone, that you would guard us from a thousand sins because we are so fixated on wanting more and more of Jesus. But Father, we're thankful that when we fail, you have provided a sacrifice, that Jesus has laid down his life in our place so that we could dwell with our forever high priest for all eternity. And so Father, I pray for us now, even as we turn our attention to the Lord's table, I pray that it would be a precious time of proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, a precious time of remembering what Christ has done for us as our faithful high priest. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.